Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Thank you very much for joining us for yet another installment of our hernia series here on Behind the Knife. It is an absolute honor today to be joined by some of my friends and colleagues who are also hernia enthusiasts. I'm Vahag Nikolian, and I'm joined today by one of our uh, my partners at OHSU, Dr. Sean Ornstein, who I consider the guru of mesh and all things abdominal wall. Uh, we're also joined by Shiroz Rahman, who's one of our third-year residents at OHSU, and we're hoping to convert him into a hernia enthusiast in the future. Uh, today, we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to our hearts, uh, preoperative optimization for patients undergoing hernia repair. Uh, there's a lot of data that we're going to review. We'll include some important articles in our show notes, and we hope that it's impo- uh, helpful for you in planning your future operations. So with that said, we're going to talk about pre-op optimization. And, and the question is, why do we optimize? And the reason is because we want to maximize the potential for good outcomes. Every single time you operate on a patient and try to repair a hernia, you increase or you have a high burden of recurrence. And every subsequent recurrence and operation will have a higher rate of reoperation, recurrence, and complications. So your next operation is your best shot at a durable and long-term repair. So Shiroz, when you think about hernias, what do you think about and what are what is the burden of hernias in the general population? Yeah, so some of these numbers uh, are quite staggering. There can be about a third or more uh, rate of hernias, of incisional hernias following a midline laparotomy. Uh, annually, about uh, half a million of these repairs are being performed uh, with a pretty wide range of recurrence rates, which can be as low as a single digits to up to the 40%, uh, up to around 40%. And the complication rate for these hernia repairs also are pretty wide, uh, ranging from about 10 to a little over half of half that are performed uh, with the readmission rate, which can range from five to 13%. Uh, overall, this can lead to uh, a pretty high healthcare cost, which can range in the billions of dollars. Absolutely. So a common operation, but the outcomes aren't necessarily as good as you would hope, especially given how often it's performed. And these numbers also highlight the spectrum of hernia disease, you know, ranging from small, minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic hernias to very large and complex hernias. And that's why we're seeing recurrence rates from, as Sharo said, from single to high digits with, with relatively high potential complication rates. So, uh, you know, it just it, it's quite the burden from surgeons, whether it be small centers or large centers. This is a this is a big problem in this country and in the world. So people talk about why this happens. And uh, so, Dr. Ornstein, what are your thoughts on uh, the reason why hernias happen? A lot of this gets back to this vicious cycle, uh, and this has been written about in the literature. And what happens is you get a patient, they undergo a ventral hernia repair, and perhaps they're not optimized. And we're going to get through some of those specifics in a moment. 
But, and then that patient may get an, a complication, for example, a surgical site infection. That infection leads to readmission and may lead to wound breakdown, fascia breakdown, and a subsequent hernia recurrence. And then we start again, where they get another hernia repair, uh, optimized or non-optimized. Maybe you get another complication and, and ongoing and ongoing this vicious cycle. So our goal is really to how can we stop this cycle? How can we get those patients in a better state of health? get their bodies uh, and their abdominal walls in an opportune place for a, a long-lasting, durable, and effective, safe repair. Wonderful. All right, so it's all about essentially operating at the right time with the right operation for the right patient. And so what we're going to focus on today is how do you get there in the pre-op setting? So pre-op optimization Shiroz, when you're thinking about pre-op optimization and you're in clinic with us, what are the big three that we try to focus on for, especially for ventral hernia or large ventral hernia repairs? And some of these we will definitely dive in deeper, uh, but the three main pillars that we include are one being weight loss and uh, having patients reach a target BMI. Uh, the second is smoking cessation, so having patients uh, quit smoking preoperatively and hopefully lifetime as well. And the third one is diabetes control and having their A1Cs uh, lowered. Great. Yeah, those are the big three. We ask about it all the time in our, uh, in our hernia clinic. And what are some other things you think about whenever you're seeing a patient in clinic, uh, Dr. Ornstein? Well, besides the three big ones, which we do focus on, there are other things. There's other medical comorbidities, whether it be their cardiac or pulmonary status. Um, what's their uh, ambulatory status? Are, are they coming in wheelchair bound or the, can they even ambulate? Are they chronic pain? Do they have substance abuse? There's a lot of factors that go into it. And while we, we certainly try to be comprehensive and take care of all of them, there are certain ones that we can't focus on to get our patients to a more ideal setting. Great. All right. So it's all about optimizing optimization. Clearly, we can't fix everything, but there are certain things that we can focus on. In an ideal world, every patient would be optimized, but that's not the reality that we live in. So which patients do you consider to be high risk, Sean? Uh, well, again, as you said, ideally, everybody gets optimized. But if we have to focus on certain groups, we want to go after the high risk patients, people that are actively smoking, uh, if they have active wound infection, infected mesh, fistula, uh, et cetera. Uh, if they're extremely large hernias, perhaps loss of abdominal domain. Uh, maybe this isn't their first rodeo here, and this is a multi-recurrent complex hernia, uh, people with poor nutrition. Um, also, let's not forget, even with all those, some of these patients are amenable to a minimally invasive approach, which lowers the risk. But many of these patients still require an open operation with big potential for wound morbidity. And last but not least, some robotic cases have to get converted to open. So, you know, aside from the, the small, straightforward hernias, if we're doing a, a robotic or minimally invasive approach to a complex hernia, we have to prepare that patient for a possible open repair. And so those patients also should be optimized. Absolutely. All right. So objectively defining risk is something that we're trying to do, uh, get better at. Clearly, we're not perfect. There are a lot of risk stratification tools that exist. Um, what are some of the ones that you regularly use in your clinic, Dr. Orenstein? Well, the one, there are a handful of risk calculators. Um, 
and they all have their sort of their, their pros and cons. Some of them take quite a bit of time and data entry. Some of them not so much. One of my favorite ones is to use the Cedar app. Uh, it's a free app made by the folks at, from Carolinas Medical Center that use their data to extrapolate uh, wound complication risk. And I do this right in front of my patients in the clinic. I bring my phone out and go through the, the eight simple questions. And then it, you know, it kind of spits out a risk complication number. You can be in the 20, 30%. I've had patients where it's 70 to 80% risk of a wound complication. And the nice thing about this is uh, this is a way of showing them some objective data, some objective information, why we have to delay their elective operation and get them optimized. The nice thing about using apps like this is that with the use of that, you can change the answers on that and watch that risk, that number goes down. I, I click on the buttons right in front of them. They can say, okay, if you stop smoking, boom, you just dropped your risk by 10%. If you can get your weight controlled uh, or your diabetes managed, we keep continuing to risk reduce. And we're not trying to get the risk to zero. That'll never happen. That's not possible with the human body, but it's about risk reduction. And this is a nice objective way to show them that. And I also document this in my clinic note. Absolutely. That's so important. So a lot of times patients are coming to our clinic and I tell them, uh, today is dedicated to education, educating me about you and educating you about yourself and your hernia and your outcomes. And hopefully through that process, we can establish a good relationship and work towards this goal of optimization. So we talked about the three pillars. Uh, let's start with smoking cessation. Uh, Shiroz, why do we want patients to quit smoking? And how long do you usually recommend for patients to quit smoking before an abdominal wall surgery? Well, we want patients to quit smoking because the data that's published show that there is an increased rate in surgical site infections, readmissions, and hernia recurrence uh, in patients who continue to smoke. Ideally, these patients should quit uh, a minimum of four weeks preoperatively. And as far as testing, they can undergo a coating test, which is a byproduct of nicotine, uh, which can be done uh, either on the day of surgery or preoperatively. Sean, what are your thoughts on uh, coating testing? And is there any other options in the pre-op setting to uh, better distinguish uh, what's going on with your patient with regard to smoking cessation. Yeah, and smoking is certainly a problem all, all across the whole country. Certain uh, regions have a worse problem than others, but it really is important because of all the stuff that Shiroz just talked about and, and the increased risk. So a lot of this is counseling, talking to our patients why it's such an important uh, thing to, to get them through. Uh, and and the, the really the need for smoking cessation. And in our clinic, you know, we're pretty strict about it. We mandate a minimum of 30 days of smoking abstinence. It uh, doesn't mean they, it can be more than 30 days. And as Rose also said, this needs to continue beyond surgery as well. That doesn't mean they get to start smoking on post-op day one or any, anything like that. So it's about counseling. Uh, for, for high-risk individuals, we do check nicotine and the metabolites. That includes uh, cotinine and the other metabolites. And by using those numbers, we can look at the ratio of those metabolites and see if they're actively smoking versus if they're doing nicotine replacement therapy. And in our clinic, we're okay with nicotine replacement therapy, whether that be gum, patch, lozenge. Um, there's real good data from Sorensen. Alar Sorensen, a, 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 a researcher out of Denmark, has some of, is one of the world's experts at smoking cessation and the effects on wound healing. And a lot of the data in the hernia world is extrapolated from his data. And it shows that uh, a minimum of 30 days reduces the risk of wound complications. 
And interestingly, nicotine replacement therapy does not increase the risk of wound complications. So from my standpoint, if whatever it takes to get that patient off of smoking, that's what we need to do. Now, with e-cigarettes and things like that, there's really no good data on that. But the reality is it still has other byproducts and um, toxic chemicals in that. And we put that in the same category as smoking. So everything has to get stopped, whether it be cigars, cigarettes, e-cigarettes, all that has to get stopped minimum of 30 days. Last thing I'll say is that insurance is getting on board with this too. Oregon Health Plan, which is our state Medicaid, has also mandated 30 days of smoking cessation where they won't even... And uh, uh, authorize a procedure, an elective procedure, if they're actively smoking. So we have to show proof of smoking cessation prior to even obtaining authorization for some of these cases. What about obesity? Uh, we talked about obesity uh, briefly. Sharos, uh, why do we uh, want to get patients weight in a more uh, safe location? And what would you define as an ideal BMI? in advance of abdominal wall reconstruction or hernia repair? Yeah, uh, it's crucial to tackle obesity prior to an elective hernia repair. Uh, There is an increased rate of hernia recurrence in in obese patients. There's an increased risk of a surgical site infection, pulmonary complications, uh, VTEs and readmissions. And as far as the ideal BMI cutoff, it it seems like essentially in the literature that there's no consensus on in a specific ideal number. However, uh, I think most hernia surgeons would like to see that BMI be around 35, if not lower. Yeah, so 35 is what you'll often see cited as the ideal BMI. The truth is it's very much patient-centric. So when we see a patient in clinic and they come in with a BMI of say 45, and we're working on optimization, we may not be able to achieve 35, but we can get closer to 35. And that trajectory can really help. So if they're able to go down to a BMI of 38, the compliance of the abdominal wall changes, the amount of visceral fat can oftentimes reduce, so you're able to close the abdomen more effectively. Uh, Alternatively, if a patient comes to you with a BMI of 30, and then on the day of surgery, their BMI has jumped to 36, their compliance is likely changed. And so you want to just really, even with patients who are coming to your clinic with a lower BMI than 35, still stress to them the importance of making sure to focus in on living a healthy life and making sure that they walk into that operation as healthy as possible so that they can maximize their outcome. Diabetes is the third of the three, big three. Um, And so what are you thinking about with diabetes and what is your uh, goal hemoglobin A1C? Uh, I remember learning from Dr. Orenstein in clinic that diabetes is such a problem because of the microvasculature that's getting getting affected uh, and uh, poorly controlled diabetes can result in an increased rate of wound complications and uh, perioperative complications as well. Ideally, you want that A1C to be uh, below 6.5. And again, it's all about trajectory. If someone comes to you with like a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 or consistently around 6.89, 
um, and and they're otherwise doing well, you may be able to offer them an operation. But clearly, if someone's coming to you with a hemoglobin A1C of nine or 10, you wanna work with their PCP or their uh, endocrinologist to get their diabetes under better control. So trajectory, trajectory, trajectory. Prehabilitation is not necessarily a, a single entity, but it's something that we definitely talk about. So Dr. Ornstein, could you tell us a little about why prehabilitation has become such a common theme in general surgery and in hernia surgery as well? Yeah, it, it's interesting how prehabilitation seems like it's a new concept, but it actually it's been around for quite some time. There's really good literature about this, especially for uh, cancer cases, thoracic, and, and other uh, surgical disciplines that they've had data for many, many years about this. And we're, we're finally kind of bringing this to the hernia world. And the whole idea is, as it sounds, prehabilitation. It's preoperative rehabilitation. Trying to get that patient, aside from the other factors we talked about, trying to get their, 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 their body's physiology in a much better, better state to improve their outcomes. And, um, Again, there's three main prongs to this uh, with with things like um, physical exercise, um, nutritional optimization, and psychological support. And each of these arms really goes hand in hand together to get them uh, to a better state of health. Absolutely. So let's talk about these a bit. So physical exercise and strengthening. Uh, Shuros, what are you thinking about when you see a patient that may come to your clinic and they're sort of uh, not necessarily getting up and they're spry? What are you talking to them about and uh, what are your goals? Well, so step one is uh, done by doing a baseline assessment. This can be done in the clinic by having the patient uh, walking down the hallway or having them walk up a flight of stairs to see what their physical uh, capacity is at that initial visit. Uh, if it's possible, you can also have them see a physical therapist afterwards. Uh, the overall goal for them uh, should be to have a regimen that includes endurance and cardiovascular exercises to help them increase that functional reserve uh, as as well as strengthening exercises. Great. That's, again, an ideal and a, and a goal. And so, Dr. Oresti, when you're seeing patients in your clinic, how are you uh, sort of making this happen in real time with uh, real patients? What Shiro says first is just a baseline assessment. Sometimes you can assess that as they are getting wheeled into the room. And I'm, you know, I'm saying that they're in their wheelchair. Maybe perhaps they're elderly and frail. Um, you know, I ask them, they, they can't even walk up a flight of stairs. They, you know, they, they have a hard time getting out of their wheelchair into your exam table. These are, you know, more ominous signs that they need some work before you embark on a, on a lengthy and complex operation. Uh, and so for many of these people, we refer them to our physical therapy unit, which has a prehabilitation role. That, that's part of their job and a uh, program that they have developed. And many other physical therapy centers around the country have also developed these these, these sort of aspects of their centers to help the patients in the pre-op setting. And what's kind of cool about this is these aren't major strengthening exercises. It's not like going to Gold's Gym and squatting 400 pounds. This is as simple as light little arm raises, you know, with one to two pound barbells in their chairs, leg lifts. It's really more about flexibility and mild strengthening. It's not meant to bulk them up. It's meant to help them with basic uh, reversal of their deconditioned state. 
Wonderful. There's also apps that now exist that can guide patients through this as well. So plenty of cost conscious options. You don't have to feel like the patient has to join a gym or even work closely like one-on-one with a physical therapist at all times. Just give them a sense of what are things that they can do to improve their functional status and their uh, uh, functional reserve. So and the other thing with that, and this goes back, if this, this also goes back to weight loss and as well as uh, conditioning is, you know, as you said, you don't have to join an expensive gym to, to achieve this goal. Walking is a wonderful exercise. It's low impact uh, compared to other exercises on the body. And people can lose a tremendous amount of, amount of weight, increase flexibility, increase strength with daily to every other day walking. Uh, you know, it's free and easy. And so, you know, we encourage a lot of that kind of simple, easy stuff to help our patients out. Yeah. And even as simple as weights, like where our senior partner, Dr. Martindale, works in and rehabilitates patients in advance of very complex fistula operations. And he recommends to patients to just use canned food as weights. And that's as cost effective as you can get. So pretty amazing stuff there. Prehab's been around for a long time, as Dr. Ornstein mentioned, tons of data. Um, I, I typed in prehabilitation and surgery on PubMed, and we had over 400 pages of results, 4,000 results to be exact, and tons of data as far back as three to four decades. So not a new concept, but definitely more en vogue. Immunonutrition has become something that people think about and uh, usually in the setting of gastrointestinal surgery, uh, but we have seen some data on immunonutrition in abdominal wall as well. So some opportunities. Uh, Are you using immunonutrition for any of your uh, patients, uh, Dr. Ornstein? Absolutely, especially for high-risk patients. While I think that ideally everybody gets some form of immunonutrition, this is another realm where we focus on the high-risk, malnourished patients. There's a cost impact to for this. Is a lot of it's out-of-pocket expenses, unfortunately, since it's not covered by insurance for the vast majority. But uh, things like uh, Impact AR, that's Impact Advanced Recovery. Um, and by the way, there's no disclosures with Nestle who makes it. There are other companies that make these immune modulating formulas. And I'll be honest, when I first heard about these, I was a little skeptical. I said, okay, it's just a protein supplement, no big deal. But the reality is uh, these immune modulating formulas, you know, where they have uh, omega fatty acids, um, arginine and and other products that actually can manipulate uh, the immune system of the body and get it revved up and ramped up for a surgical operation. So part of it is protein supplementation and part of it is this immune modulating formula. And there is exceptional data out there, level one data out there, thousands and thousands of patients that have been studied, randomized controlled trials uh, that demonstrate the beneficial effects of these immune modulating formulas. And I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, leaving the hospital sooner. We're talking about reduced rate of surgical site infections, reduced sepsis. There's even some studies that are showing reduced mortality uh, with the use of these uh, in, in all comers. So it's quite staggering the effects of nutrition and nutritional optimization cannot be emphasized enough uh, uh, for many of our patients. Yeah, amazing, amazing stuff out there in terms of the literature. Psychological support should not be underestimated either. Uh, abdominal wall surgery, large ventral hernias can have a major impact to patients. And so working with patients to optimize uh, uh, their psychological support in advance of surgery can translate into uh, better outcomes. 
so uh, we collaborate regularly with our uh, uh, psychiatric and psychological services here and, and make sure that the patients are ready mentally for the physical demands of the operation. Uh, we've talked a lot today about the ideal state, and many people will say, well, the reality is I can't invest, I don't have the time to invest in the challenges of optimizing this some of my more complex patients. I don't have the resources. And the truth is, you resources, when um, allocated to the post-operative complications can be pretty intense as well. So it's all about trying to be proactive, invest that time initially before you put an incision on someone, identify personnel and people that can support that patient in advance of surgery to hopefully have cost mitigating and complication mitigating things in place to maximize your outcome long-term. So in conclusion, I think preoperative optimization is critical for postoperative outcomes. It definitely takes a multidisciplinary approach and, and it's important to establish a team of individuals dedicated to getting the patient across the finish line. And proactive preparation can hopefully mitigate retrospective regrets. So with that said, I wanna thank my, my, my collaborators here, Dr. Ornstein and uh, Dr. Rahman. And we hope that you enjoyed this talk on pre-op optimization. Good luck and continue to dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.